Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 14 is where we are in our study of the most important book ever written. That phrase is a little bit ambiguous. You might think I'm referring to the whole Bible when I say the most important book ever written, but the Bible is actually a library of books, 66 of them, that have been collected, the words of God. And out of these 66 books, perhaps there is none that is more important to understand than Paul's letter to the church at Rome. That's why we have undertaken in the last two years to teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this amazing letter, as it has been called, the Cathedral of the Christian Faith. To understand the book of Romans gives you a sure path to understanding all of Scripture. And we want to have God's Word clear in our hearts and minds. In Romans chapter 14, we are dealing with matters of conscience. How is it that Christians who come from different backgrounds, who can have different ideas about what is right, what is wrong, what is pleasing to God, and what is not pleasing to God, how is it that we can live together in one church, one family, in unity? And that is Paul's concern throughout Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15 are these issues of unity. And so last week when we looked into the first 13 verses of Romans chapter 14, we drew these four principles worded a little bit differently than I gave them to you last week. I think I made an improvement on them from last week. Four principles of unity from our sermon that I wanted to remind you of today at the start of part two in Romans chapter 14. So if we can keep in mind what is our job and what is God's job, then that's going to go a long way in preserving unity in the family. In a family, if everyone knows what their role is, and everyone functions according to their role, you have unity. But if the children think they're in charge, well, then you end up having some problems. And if the husband abdicates his responsibilities and is off playing golf, well, then you're going to have some problems. And so each person in the family needs to know who does what. And when it comes to disunity in the church, it usually comes from forgetting one of these four principles of unity. Number one, God is the one who determines who is welcome in his household. We are the household of God. That is what the church is. It's not this building. This is the building we meet in. But the temple of God is the hearts of the people of God. That as those who are born again, who have the spirit of God, we are a temple of the living God. We are God's household, God's family, God's dwelling place. And God decides who is welcome among us. You don't get to choose who's going to be a Christian and who's not going to be a Christian. And everyone who chooses to be a Christian, to be a part of his family, is welcome in God's household. And that's that. Very important to remember principle number one. God welcomes. He's the one who determines it. Number two, all of us will stand before God in judgment. I'm not your judge. You're not my judge. I'm not accountable to you. You're not accountable to me. But each one of us has one Lord. One master, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we can remember to allow other people to serve their master according to their conscience, then that is going to provide unity. God is the judge. God is the one who welcomes. God is the one who judges. The third principle that we see there in verses 7 and 8 is that Jesus is Lord. This is a very important principle. Let me take a moment to highlight this one because I stated it a little bit differently here than I stated it last week. Romans 14, 1 through 12, is traditionally thought of as a passage about gray areas, about issues where Christians disagree. And, of course, it does have to do with such matters, even if I don't prefer the term gray area. But bigger than that idea... I think in this passage, we have a very strong passage about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look again at Romans 14, verses 7 and 8 for a moment. Let me read it for us. It says, None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die... We are the Lord's. And verse 9 drives the point even further. It says, For to this end Christ died and lived again. The death and resurrection of Christ, what's it all about? 
Why did Christ do it? Why did God send Christ to die and to live again? It's so that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Now, there's been a a controversy among the evangelical churches in the last 40 years about an issue called the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is it possible for someone to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior without receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord? And this passage settles the issue. Paul doesn't command us to obey Jesus as Lord. He assumes that every Christian, whether they are weak in the faith, whether they are strong in the faith, whether they're immature or whether they're mature, he says the heart of every born-again Christian is Jesus is my Lord. If I live, I live for the Lord. If I die, I die for the Lord. This is the only passage you need to solve the Lordship issue. Does a Christian receive Jesus Christ as Lord when he receives salvation? Romans 14, 7-9 says, yes. There's no other way to read it. And if you recognize that, if you recognize that Jesus is Lord, not just for you, but for your brother, for your sister, for your wife, for your kids, that is going to be a powerful principle of unity. Because so much of the disunity that exists in this world comes from creatures trying to lord it over other creatures. So much of the conflict, so much of the discord, it comes when I try to become your Lord. When you try to become my Lord. Let me take a moment here to to talk to the men in the church. You don't want your boss at work to come to your house and tell you what you're supposed to do with your private time. Do you? You don't want the governor of your state to come into your house or to come into this house of worship and tell us what we're supposed to do. That is outside of their sphere of authority. And so, husbands... Leave room for your wife to have Jesus Christ as her Lord. Don't try to be in control of everything that goes on in her life. You don't want the authorities in your life to be overstepping their bounds and be controlling. And so don't do that to others. Parents, give your kids room to have Jesus Christ as their Lord. Don't try to be the Lord to your children. Instead, teach your children to obey the Lord from the heart and give them freedom to do so. If you can keep in mind that Jesus Christ is Lord of the heart, then a lot of the discord, a lot of the disunity is going to be solved. So much of our problems come from us trying to be Lord of other people I'm not saying there's not authority. I'm not saying a husband doesn't have authority over his wife. I'm not saying parents don't have authority over their children. But that's a limited authority. It's not the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the authority that you have is only a gift from him to be exercised as a steward of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your goal is to allow people to live free. Live free before their God. We want our government to let us to live free. And so the elders of this church should let you live free. The husbands should let their families live free. Don't be binding people with your laws, but instead point people to the one lawgiver, the one whom they must give an account to, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, a very practical doctrine for church unity. God upholds. Last week I put it this way, that you must have God's power to sanctify his servants. But I thought, well, since I've got God welcomes, God judges, Jesus is Lord, let's just keep it in a similar format and change it to God upholds. The Lord is able to make Christians stand. You might look at Christians and you might see their weakness of faith, you might see their spiritual immaturity, and you might think, I've got to do something. If I don't do something, they're going to fall away. I'm not saying that we shouldn't encourage and we shouldn't build up and we shouldn't be there for one another. But don't take upon yourself to do God's job. God is real. 
God is powerful. And many of us live like practical atheists and we think it's my job to make you do what God wants you to do. It's not my job to make you do what God wants you to do. It's God's job to make you do what God wants you to do. I can't take responsibility that is not mine. I can't take authority that is not mine. And notice how they go together. If you try to take authority that is not yours and you make yourself Lord, well, then you've got that responsibility that comes with that lordship, right? But if you are willing to let Jesus be Lord, then you can let him take the responsibility. That's wonderful. Do you feel burdened with responsibility? Do you feel weighted down by responsibility? Maybe you've taken on authority that is not your authority. And that's why you feel this burden of responsibility. Maybe you need to remember that God is real, that God is powerful, that God is able to sanctify his saints, and that God is able to get us safely to our heavenly home, and that's not dependent upon you. There's a certain freedom in this, and it certainly promotes unity. God welcomes, God judges, Jesus is Lord, and God upholds his servants. Four principles that are very clear in Romans 13, 1 through 12. All right, now, as we transition from last week and the first 12 verses there to this week, I got a couple of verses I want to compare and contrast to set this up. Titus 3.9, you see it there on the screen. The command of God to this fellow pastor, Titus, who's in Crete doing work among the churches, he tells the Cretans to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So in this verse, we are told that there are certain controversies that we're supposed to stay out of, that we're supposed to avoid. That sounds like a good principle. Not every controversy is something you have to weigh in on. Not everything that people start talking about on the internet is is your business. Not something that you need to talk about and focus on. There are controversies that you should avoid. However, there are controversies that we're not supposed to avoid, and that's why I contrast the verse in Titus with this one from Romans. At the end of Romans, Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So Titus doesn't say, you'd be taking the verse in Titus too far, making it say what it doesn't say, if you took from Titus that we're always just supposed to say, well, I don't care about this issue or that issue. All I care about is let's hug it out. Let's not argue and get into quarrels and all of that is unprofitable. We're just going to love each other. That would be a wrong reading of Titus. That's not what Paul means because we interpret Scripture by Scripture. And Scripture tells us that we are supposed to mark those who cause divisions and create contrary to the doctrine that we've been taught, and we're supposed to avoid them. So there are some people who are not welcome in this church because they would be teaching contrary to the doctrine of the apostles. And we don't allow that. So how do you know when you're supposed to stay out of a quarrel and when you're supposed to get into a quarrel? That's going to be an important question as we look into our text for today. Let's go ahead and read the second half of Romans chapter 14 together. We'll pick it up with verse 12, and that kind of is our bridge, our transition from the first half to the second half, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then, in summarizing what he said, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, 
Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'm also going to read verses 1 and 2 in chapter 15, because this is probably an unfortunate chapter break. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And he goes on and gives the example of Christ and the scriptures for us. Now, Paul has a long section here from chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 7, that all has this drive towards unity. Chapter 15, verses 6 and 7 really drive that unity message home. And he continues on talking about Jew and Gentile in the rest of chapter 15. Now, when it comes to unity, we have to know when do we avoid people and when do we welcome people, right? Because the Bible says avoid certain people, but the Bible says welcome the one who is weak in faith. So there's a difference between the brother who is weak in faith versus the so-called brother who is causing divisions and creating obstacles contrary to the doctrine of the apostles. Now, In order to make such a discerning distinction, we need to learn how to weigh the importance of convictions and beliefs. No two Christians are going to agree on everything. There's not another pastor in the state who is going to agree with me on every point of doctrine. And so, we have to be discerning. We have to learn, how do I weigh the importance of the differences? There are some so-called pastors out there whom I will have nothing to do with. I will avoid them because they create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that I've been taught. But I have to be able to recognize friend from foe. And there's a lot of friends out there who are going to disagree with me on a lot of points of doctrine, and we need to know. We need to have discernment. It takes a lot of wisdom. J.D. Greer, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, teaches a lot of good things. He's had a lot of good sermons, but he says some foolish things. This is one of his worst statements I pulled out for you here. In a sermon on Romans chapter 1 regarding homosexuality, he said, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about. We ought to shout about what it shouts about. He didn't come up with that idea. He's quoting from probably a a lot of people who have said that in recent years. It's actually a good statement. I like it. I like that statement. We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what the Scripture shouts about. But it takes some discernment, yes, to know what does the Scripture whisper about and what does the Scripture shout about. And here J.D. Greer shows a terrible lack of discernment about what the Scripture whispers about. He says the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Now, I don't know what Bible J.D. Greer is reading that he thinks the Bible whispers about sexual sin. Old Testament, New Testament, I think the Bible is abundantly clear that this is a sin of utmost gravity and severity. And the Bible shouts about the danger of sexual sin. That Paul writes to the churches, where he starts to give practical exhortation to the churches, He makes sure to point out the dangers of sexual sin. And so, the world around us is going to try to confuse us. It's going to try to mislead us. It's going to try to get us to think Scripture is whispering about what it's actually shouting about, and it's actually shouting about what it's whispering about. And so, you need shepherds who know their Bible well enough and who believe their Bible with their heart so that they can teach accurately what the Bible is shouting about, and what the Bible is whispering about. Now, if you want to ask me, Timothy, is there an example of something the Scripture whispers about that you believe and teach? 
I'd say a good example of that is the pre-tribulational rapture. There's not a verse in Scripture that specifically states that Jesus Christ is going to come back before the great tribulation to rapture us. Now, the rapture is not a whisper. The rapture is shouted about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But the timing of the rapture relative to the great tribulation is not something the Scripture makes abundantly clear. You have to put the pieces of the puzzle together and different people put the puzzle together a little bit differently and weigh the evidence differently. And so if there's a pastor out there who believes in the rapture, he believes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the word of God, he knows that that's going to come true according to the word of God, but he disagrees with me on the timing of that. I'll say, that's fine. We can have fellowship. We can worship together. I can have you preach in my pulpit because that's something that the scripture whispers about. But there are things that the scripture shouts about. And if there was a pastor in the church who said, homosexuality is not really a sin, you know, love is love, it's all good, I'd say, uh, hold on. That's an issue where we are going to part ways. Because the Bible specifically says that if somebody comes teaching a different sexual ethic than what is taught in the scripture, that that is a separation issue. And so having discernment to know what is a separation issue and what is not a separation issue takes a lot of Bible study. And it's something that we need to do together. That's why you have elders in the church to work these things out. All right? Now, when it comes to practical matters among us within our congregation, there are also issues where the Scripture is not abundantly clear And we're going to have some disagreements as to what's right and what's not right. This has always been the case, still remains true today. Now, these matters where Christians of goodwill disagree with one another on what is pleasing to the Lord and what is displeasing to the Lord, these have a special name in church history. Before I give you that, I I forgot I had this good quote from Mark Bloke, who's a a historian. And guys like J.D. Greer... When it comes to stupid statements like what he just said, what he's doing is is this error, okay? There are in the world scholars where good nature has worn itself out in seeking a middle ground between antagonistic statements. There's a number of pastors that want to find a middle ground. There's a, a term for this in the church today called the third way. The third way proponents say, well, you've got you know, your, your rabid conservatives over here and you've got your crazy liberals over here and, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. And so we want to find this middle way of living the Christian life. And so this is the middle ground between antagonistic statements. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. Well, there's a little bit of truth in what each of you are saying and we'll walk that middle path. Mark has this to say. They are like the little chap who asked for the square of the number two when one neighbor whispered four and the other eight thought he had hit the mark in answering six. But taking the middle ground is not always the right answer, right? And so when it comes to homosexuality being a sin or not, the answer is four. It's four. And though there's other people saying eight, you don't take six as your answer. There is a right answer, and the Bible gives the right answer. We don't compromise on this. A lot of pastors are getting run over by the world because they want to be in the middle of the road instead of standing where Scripture stands. Now, all that to say, there are matters of indifference. The word that I was about to introduce to you before I was interrupted by a great quote has to do with things that are not sinful in and of themselves. All right? Paul is going to make this point in verses 14 and 20 that there are Things that are not sinful in and of themselves. The word for this is adiaphoron. All right? Might be a new word for a lot of you. Uh, Comes from philosophy. Stoic philosophers who existed before the New Testament was written, they had these discussions about these moral issues. And they came up with this word about things that have no moral merit or demerit. It doesn't make you better if you do it. It doesn't make you worse if you don't do it. And that's exactly what Paul says about this eating of meat. If you eat meat, it doesn't make you more godly. If you don't eat meat, it doesn't make you less godly. It's not a moral issue whether you eat meat or not. Whatever Peter has to say about it. 
So this is a matter that has no moral merit or demerit. And Paul says that Christians are going to disagree on these things. Some Christians are not going to be able to recognize when something is morally neutral, and they're going to think that it's either morally good or morally bad. The examples that we have in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, example of food sacrifice to idols, this would be a moral demerit in the minds of some Christians. If you eat food that's sacrificed to idols, it defiles you. That's a bad thing to do. Holy days would be a moral merit. You keep a holy day like the Sabbath or the Passover, you know, have a, a Jewish cedar meal, that would be moral merit. But the truth is, is that neither of these things make you better or worse if you do them or don't. But there's a subjective side of these things. In themselves, it's a matter that has no moral merit or demerit. Now, the second definition that you see here, these are both from Merriam-Webster, is a religious ceremony or ritual observance that is held to be an affair of the individual conscience because it is neither forbidden nor enjoined by the scriptures. The Bible doesn't tell us we can't do it. The Bible doesn't command us to do it. And so it's a matter of liberty. It's a matter of conscience. Do I think it's the best way to serve God? Do I think it's not a good way to serve God? And one of the areas in the church where this adiaphoron is most prevalent today is with regards to music. What kind of instruments should we use to worship the Lord? Here we've got the piano and the organ. You know, that's biblical. You're only supposed to have pianos and organs in churches. Well, no, that's not biblical. The Old Testament talks about symbols, loud crashing symbols. We don't have loud crashing symbols. The Bible talks a lot about the lyre, which is a stringed instrument, kind of like a guitar. Where's our, where's our lyres? Where's our guitars? So the Bible doesn't command us to sing a cappella. It doesn't command us to use symbols. It just commands us to praise and worship the Lord. But Christians have different ideas about this. Some people associate guitars and drums with rock and roll. And they associate rock and roll with drugs and sex. And they think, well, we Christians, we're not supposed to be associated with drugs and sex, and so we don't want the worship of our church to feel like a rock concert. We want a high worship. We want a traditional worship. And so in their heart, they go to a church that has the rock and roll, and they just feel like, I can't worship God in this atmosphere. It just feels worldly to me. Other Christians come to, and they hear our organ and piano playing, and they're like, how do you worship God with that? I can't worship God with that kind of music. And so these are not moral matters, but subjectively, people respond differently to them. Now, Christians sometimes might make the mistake that there is no such thing as subjective truth. Because we tend to look at the moral relativist who's teaching situational ethics, and he says, there's no objective truth, there's no universal truth, everything is relative, and we react against that moral relativist, and we say, all truth is objective. And that would be the opposite error. There is a such thing as objective truth. There is such a thing as subjective truth. So here in this case, the middle path is actually the right path. You know, sometimes it works out that way. You don't want to deny subjective truth in your defense of objective truth. So let's talk a little bit about objective and subjective truth here when we're talking about adiaphoron, a matter that has no moral merit or demerit. Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where we had our scripture reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. So what you eat does not spiritually defile you, nor does it sanctify you. Even if you have a really bad diet, and you're eating lots of sugar, spiritually, sugar does nothing to your relationship with God. Sugar is neutral. It's not a moral thing. Subjectively, things can be right or wrong. See, when I'm talking objective truth, I'm talking about the thing in relationship to itself. 
let's take this remote for an example, all right? This remote, in relationship to itself, is neither good nor bad. However, in my hands, when I'm using it for a presentation on the Word of God, now it takes on a significance of being used for something good. It's the thing in relationship to itself versus the thing in relationship to the subject. This is the object. I'm the subject. All right? Now, my wife is my wife because in relationship to the subject, she belongs to me. But in relationship to herself... She is herself, a person. And when you relate to Jamie, you don't relate to her as your wife. You relate to her as your sister in the Lord. And so you have a different subjective relationship to Jamie, even though Jamie in and of herself is still the same. So there's just two ways of looking at things, whether you're looking at the thing in and of itself or if you're looking at the thing in relationship to the person. And so Paul teaches here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, also in Romans, that nothing is good or bad in and of itself. We're talking about physical things, whether it's food, whether it's cars, whether it's marijuana. Nothing is good or bad in and of itself. You're not defiled by touching a marijuana plant. God created the marijuana plant. It's a good creation. It has uses, good uses. But... If somebody abuses what God has created and uses it for an evil purpose, then they are the ones who are using something for evil and it's that relationship of the subject to the object that then defiles it. Jesus said it this way. He said, that which goes into the man doesn't defile him, but it's that which comes out of the man that defiles him. Things aren't good or evil. People are good and evil. Things are not moral, People are moral. And so it's the people that use things that use them in an evil way. But there's nothing evil about the thing itself. Even a Ouija board, something that is used in occult practices, it's not evil in and of itself. You're not going to touch it and be like, oh no, I'm spiritually defiled. Somebody do a cleansing ceremony. It's just a thing. It's just wood. It's just cardboard. But... When the wood and the cardboard is used for evil, that's where the evil comes from. The design of the thing, the use of the thing, the heart behind it. And this leads us into all kinds of questions and issues, all kinds of disputed practices, all kinds of confusion. And this is why it's so important for us to be growing in our knowledge of God, knowledge of the truth, so that we can clearly discern what is a matter of moral merit and demerit, and what is not a matter of moral merit and demerit. For example, beards. In some cultures, if you don't have a beard, you're not much of a man. In other cultures, it's kind of wrong to have a beard, and you should be clean-shaven. There was a rule in a Christian college years ago that none of the men were allowed to have beards. I don't know where they got that rule. I don't know why it was important to them, but they thought that was an issue they wanted to to stand on. No beards in our Christian school. And so, eventually, culture's changing, and one of the leaders of that school has a beard. And people are shocked. Their conscience is telling them it's not right to have a beard because that's always been our belief. That's always been our rule. And so a young lady goes up to the the man who has a beard and says, your beard is causing me to stumble. And he asked her, is my beard tempting you to grow a beard? (laughs) And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 14. When God is telling us not to put a stumbling block in place of a brother, you see in verses 13 to 16, verses 20 and 21, The command of Scripture is to not put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. Let's read those verses once again. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Okay, so objectively, nothing is unclean. Paul states that very strongly. Things are not good or bad. 
It's people. It's the way we think about things. It's the way we use them. That's what's good or bad. And he says this. But, here's the subjective truth. It is unclean for anyone who thinks it to be unclean. So if I think growing a beard is sinful, and yet I really like the way I look in a beard, and so it's like, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to do it, but I have to. It's just too cool. That would be going against my conscience. And it would actually be wrong for me to grow a beard if I thought it wasn't right, if I thought it was ungodly, just because I wanted to be cool, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. It's not the beard, it's your conviction about the beard. And if you have a conviction that you're not supposed to do it, then don't do it. That's what he says at the end of the chapter. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you have doubts and your heart is condemning you about something you do, even if your conscience is wrong, even if your conscience is misinformed, the Bible says obey your conscience. Don't do anything that you are not convinced is right before God. If you're doubting, maybe it's right, maybe it's not. I see some Christians are fine with it. I want to do it. All right, let's do it. If you let that happen, what you're doing is you're training yourself to disobey the Lord. And if you encourage other people to do that, you're encouraging people to disobey the Lord. Because if I disobey the Lord in something I think is wrong, then when I get to something that actually is wrong, I've already gotten into the practice of doing what I want to do instead of doing what I think is right and what is wrong. And that destroys the work of God. The work of God is to create people who love God. And what does it mean to love God? Does it mean you like to write poetry about God? No. Jesus didn't say anything about writing poetry. It means you obey His commandments. And you can only obey His commandments as far as you understand His commandments. And so even if you've misunderstood the commandments of God and you've been told, well, this is what Jesus wants and this is not what Jesus wants, and that's wrong you still have to do what you think Jesus wants you to do. Now, our, our conscience can be informed. Our conscience can be educated. That's why we study the Word of God. But until you're convinced that it's right to do it and God wants you to do it, don't do it. And don't encourage other people to do it because you'll be destroying the work of God. Even if objectively it's not sinful. Subjectively, it can be sinful and if you train people to disobey their conscience, Jesus Christ is not happy with you. So here it says, verses 13 to 16, let's uh, pick up where we left off. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see how serious of a matter this is? Paul uses strong terminology. You are destroying your brother when you encourage him to go against his conscience. Because the whole work of God is designed to create people who obey God from the heart, their conscience. This doesn't mean that you never offend somebody. That's not what Paul is talking about. See, we've gotten confused in our English language. We think, the word offense, which has been used as a translation for this word, is the same thing as putting a stumbling block in front of someone. So that if another Christian is offended by what I'm doing, well then, I've destroyed them. You don't destroy somebody by offending them, as much as the liberals would say otherwise. You destroy someone when you encourage them to sin. And being offended is not a sin. People offend me all the time. I'm not sinning, right? So don't get confused. The command here is not never offend anyone. Take care that no Christian is ever offended by anything you say or do. That'd be a pretty hard command to follow. Now the command is don't encourage a Christian to go against their conscience. And that's why the story of the beard is so good. I got that from another preacher. That it's not wrong to offend someone by growing a beard. It's not wrong to offend someone by not growing a beard. What's wrong is, is if you encourage someone to do what they think is not right. And so if you lived in a culture where it was sinful to grow a beard, 
And you grow a beard because, hey, it's my right. I know it's right. And then all the other young men, they're like, I don't really think it's right, but, you know, beards are so cool. Let's do it. That would be wrong. Then it's wrong because you're encouraging people to do things that they don't feel right about. So it's complicated. It takes a lot of wisdom to know when do I do what is my right to do and when do I do what is best for others. Actually, when you put it that way, it's not that complicated. You always do what's best for others and not what is your right. Because Christianity is not about me asserting my rights. It's about me doing what's best for others. You know, throughout this whole pandemic, Christians have had different ideas about do you obey the mask mandate? Do you disobey the mask mandate? If you're disobeying the mask mandate because it's your right and you're concerned about your rights, you probably have the wrong mindset. But if you're disobeying the mask mandate because you love your country and you love your neighbor and you're trying to stand up for the rights of others, well, that's probably a good reason. You see, it's not whether you're obeying or you're disobeying, it's why. It's not about a mask or not a mask, it's do you have a heart of love? Do you love your neighbor? And of course, the people who were for the mask, they said, you know, the loving thing to do is to love your neighbors, wear the mask. And they assumed that people like me, who weren't wearing the mask, were not loving my neighbor. But they didn't see my heart. And my heart was, I love my neighbor by not wearing the mask. Because I'm concerned about the rights and the freedoms of all the people in this country. And by not wearing a mask, I'm standing up for everyone. And I'm willing to be called names and thought to be a jerk because I love my neighbor. It's all about why you're doing what you're doing. That's what Paul is getting at here throughout Romans 14, throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so don't be quick to judge others. Oh, you're a masker. Oh, you're not a masker. You must be someone who hates people. You must be someone who's against freedom. Well, maybe people are just trying to do their best to do what is good for their neighbor, and not everybody understands it the same way yet. Maybe we can talk about it. Maybe we can be reasonable. Instead of assigning blame and assuming motives, maybe we can have a reasonable conversation. Say, well, this is why I think this is important. This is why I think it's important. That's how Christians behave. Reasonable, gentle, patiently, full of mercy, good fruits, unity, this is how unity is procured, okay? So there's lots of things we could talk about here. We can talk about Easter eggs and infant baptism and yoga and tattoos and clothing. We can even get into doctrines of premillennialism and speaking in tongues and gender roles and church government. But it comes down to what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We're not all going to agree. But if we can agree that we are going to please our neighbor for his good, then we can navigate the disagreements. The Holy Spirit of God will mature us. He will lead us into all the truth. He will lead us to the right answers. But only if we start with that attitude. Let us build up our neighbor for his good. It's not about your rights. It's about your love for your neighbor. Now, you see, physical things are not sinful. In Romans chapter 14, verses 14 and 20, you see that it's our responsibility to remove stumbling blocks from before believers. That is, we always encourage believers to obey their conscience. And we never do anything that is going to encourage them to disobey their conscience. And then third, our responsibility to ourselves is to keep a clear conscience. You see this last week in verse 5, but also this week in verses 22 and 23. Here's a great verse. I was going to work this in somewhere, so I'll just throw it in here. 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So we have freedom, Christian freedom. You can do whatever you want. Timothy said so. You can do whatever you want. So long as 
you want to do God's will. You can do whatever you want, as long as it's God's will, because that's who you are. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ rose himself from the grave for you so that you could do whatever you want. And that what you want is what he wants. That he's your Lord. That you love the things that he loves. You hate the things that he hates. And so you're free. You're free to do whatever God wants you to do. Live with that freedom. But recognize this. No person is an island. And what God wants you to do is to look out for one another. God doesn't want you to please yourself. His command is to lay down your life for the brethren. If Jesus Christ was willing to die for me, can I give up my beard for you? If Jesus Christ was willing to die for me, can I give up celebrating Easter with bunnies and eggs for you? If Jesus Christ died for me, can I give up eating pork so I can have fellowship with Jewish Christians who are not okay with eating pork? Yeah, I should be able to do that. All right, so all things are lawful, not all things are helpful. We already talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 8, part of our scripture reading. We don't want to encourage people to go against their conscience. That's what Paul means. That's the command. All right, so keep a clear conscience. Verses 22 and 23. Let's read those together. We'll wrap this up. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. If your conscience is okay with having a beard, then go to town. As long as it doesn't cause other Christians to sin against their conscience. Here in America, a beard is not an important issue. But if you're going to go as a missionary to Saudi Arabia, you might want to grow a beard. Because the men there will not listen to you if you don't have a beard. That's part of their culture. That's part of their beliefs. You're not a man if you don't have a beard. So if you want to be respected, you grow the beard. You do it for the sake of the lost. You do it for the sake of evangelism. You do it for the sake of the Christians who are there to encourage them and build them up and not cause unnecessary strife. Now when you come back, if you've got a clear conscience in not having a beard and shaving, feel free. Because here it doesn't cause any problems. So you keep a clear conscience before God. You do what your conscience tells you to do before the Lord. I do what my conscience tells me to do before the Lord. And be wise about it. If you know you're doing something that other people think is not right, don't encourage them to do it. If your conscience is clean, great. Do it before the Lord. That is the biblical truth. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Can we be wrong? Yeah, we can be wrong. Do we sometimes do things that we think are fine, but they're not? Yeah. Should we encourage one another, talk with one another about those things? In love, yes. God will ultimately be the judge. It's before his own master that he stands or he falls. So, a few principles here in conclusion. Number one, never, ever, ever go against your conscience. It doesn't matter if people have told you that your conscience is silly. It doesn't matter if your pastor has told you it's okay. If you don't feel right about it, don't do it. Never go against your conscience. Whenever you sin against your conscience, you are training yourself to disobey the Lord. If my kids were in a situation and they were being tempted to do something, and they're thinking, I don't know if mom and dad would really want me to do this. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure they would be okay with it. If they say, well, I'll go ahead and do it because I want to, does that strengthen their heart of obedience to their parents, or does that weaken their heart of obedience to their parents? That weakens it. it trains them to say, I'm going to do what I want to do, regardless of whether or not my parents think it's right. So in the same way, you don't do that with your Heavenly Father. 
I don't know if God wants me to do this. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Eh, not a big deal. I'll go ahead and do it. You've trained yourself to not care whether or not God approves of what you're doing. That destroys the work of God. Obey your conscience. Jesus is Lord. Keep him as Lord in your heart. Number two, don't pressure others to go against their conscience. Never pressure another Christian to do something that he is not convinced is pleasing to the Lord. It's fine. Everyone knows it's fine. Go ahead. No. Don't pressure another Christian to go against his conscience. And number three, be willing to give up your rights to help your brother keep his conscience clean. You care about your brother so much that you're willing to go out of your way, to be uncomfortable, to not have what you want, to not exercise your rights and your freedom for the sake of his conscience, to help encourage him to obey his conscience. Now, let me also say this here in conclusion. If Scripture doesn't say something is a sin, let people do what they think is right. If Scripture doesn't say something is sin, let people do what they think is right. If Scripture says it is a sin, show them from the Scripture. If someone's doing something that the Bible says is a sin, show it to them from the Scripture. If you are not able to show it to them from Scripture, or you can't agree on what the Scripture says, get help from the elders. You got kids in a family? I think mom and dad would be fine with this. No, I think they wouldn't want us to do this. Go ask mom and dad. If you can, right? Well, in the church, you go and ask the elders. You're not sure? Is this sin? Is it not sin? My reading of scripture says it's okay. No, my reading of scripture says it's not okay. That's why God has given pastors to the church. And the pastors make decisions on these hard issues because they are the ones who are spiritually mature and who have been appointed by God to be the judges and the arbiters on these things. It takes a lot of wisdom, but at least you can boil it down to some pretty simple things. And if we keep Jesus as Lord, if we let him be the judge, if we let him be the one who is upholding us, we'll have the right heart to be able to apply these principles.